and welcome to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity podcast. I'm Christine Burns, and in this episode, as promised, I'm presenting last week's speech to North of England business leaders by the chair of the New Equality and Human Rights Commission, Trevor Phillips. The British media's stereotype of business attitudes to workforce issues is a crude one, which tends to play up complaints about regulation and the effects that equality legislation may have on companies. The tabloid line is that enterprise is struggling and any move, whether it's a fair minimum wage, curbs on excessive working hours or supporting parenthood, will be the straw that breaks the camel's back for profits. Nobody ever says that if a business can only survive by exploitation, then it maybe doesn't deserve to continue. Diversity is about something very different, of course. Whereas equality tends to be about the legislation for what people must do in a fair society, The potential in diversity is about playing to the strengths that lie in difference. If equality is all about the tactics to defend difference, then diversity is very much more about valuing and cultivating it. Smart corporations already understand that diversity dividend, of course, perhaps most noticeably in the United States, where top-named companies nowadays compete to demonstrate their progressive credentials to attract the best staff and cultivate the best customer loyalty. In Britain, we perhaps have further to go, so it was not a surprise that Trevor's speech would start out as it does, with a reassurance about the new Commission's understanding and realism where it comes to the tensions between wealth creation and social responsibility. But it's where he went from there that made this an interesting and well-received speech. So, here's Trevor Phillips. Thank you very much, Tim. There's, there's sort of good news, bad news, and then some more bad news. And uh, the, uh, Tim put, put it rather nicely that you know, the four of us from the private sector. But I noticed as he enumerated where we'd all been, he was, he was describing four utterly declining <laughs> parts of the private sector newspapers, television, gene making in, in Europe, and for God's sake, airlines, plummets, if you I, I am uh, very grateful for you all to be uh, being here. Uh, I'm afraid this is one of those moments where um, what someone once said to me after lunch was like this, where I was the speaker after lunch, and um, the lunch had been terrific, and everybody was enjoying their, their neighbour's company, and the wine was flowing, and the jokes were cascading across the table. The chap who was running it came, to, came up to me and said, Mr. Phillips, are you ready to speak now, or should we let them go on enjoying themselves? <laughs> um, I, I think this is a proof that there is no such thing as a free lunch. Um, you'll be happy to see that I actually don't have a speech. This is a listening event, so I'm not going to uh, give you a speech. I have been able to say a few words about Africa's organisation and why this conversation matters so much to us. I should say, first of all, that um, this is really an opening shot for us, in a sense, uh, in the North. Uh, We hope that the relationships that we're building out of today will be developed by my colleagues, led by our regional director here, Khalida Atrafi, who is sitting right there, waving her her fist, as it were, at me. Um, The staff do that a lot. Uh, But this is the way of us as an organisation beginning to try to connect, let me be absolutely frank with you connect with reality most of you in one way or another will have dealings with public sector will have dealings with government and uh, 
it is, you know, I won't be saying anything particularly original uh, when I say that it is not always the case that on our side of this, this supposed divide, the needs and the reality of working in the wealth-creating sectors are always fully understood. I grasp that. And what I hope is that in the way that the Commission begins to work, that we don't become one of those organisations that uh, spends all its time sending you out uh, either cheerful little missives saying you should be better people, or on the other hand, sending you uh, compliance notices saying why are you such bad people. What I hope we uh, are going to do, because I and my colleagues and the Commission genuinely believe this, that there isn't always necessarily, but there can be, a tremendous synergy between wealth creation and the interests of a more equal and uh, a more society more at ease with its diversity. And in the same way, like all of us who have had to pay uh, to meet a payroll, we know that actually one of the things you most need in a society is better, greater stability, better communication, more productivity between the people who work with you, and a better understanding of your customers in all of their diversity. So this agenda should really, if we manage it properly, work effectively for the private sector. We know that at the present time it needs to work even more effectively than it has done in the past. And the reason for that is a very simple one. People bandy around the word globalisation a lot these days, but actually we know in practice what it means. It does mean uncertainty. It means that we're in a world where, in a sense, all of us who are trying to get things done are doing so on an ocean of change. We've seen uh, what some people think is a big change and adjustment, what some people think is a bit of a perturbance, what some people think is an indication of the impending death of the capitalist system recently. Well, whatever you believe, the truth of the matter is that all of us uh, have to deal with the ups and downs of uh, the economic cycle and sometimes when that cycle changes, uh, as it may be happening at the present time. And there are a whole series of things which are happening which uh, we now have to deal with, which aren't just straightforwardly about what you do with the bank, what you do about interest rates. And they are to do with the way that people are changing. We know that uh, the most obvious, because it's in our newspapers every day, it's high salience for everybody. The biggest change, of course, in the labour market has been the significance of migration. Uh, I don't need to belabor the uh, issue of the A10 uh, uh, accessions and the way that that has changed uh, migration flows and the opportunity that has become available to employers by migration, through migration, but the costs and consequences, some of which are social, that have come with that. We all have to deal with this. A more diverse workforce, one that has more immigrants and so on, is of tremendous benefit, I think, to this country. We know objectively that it adds to our GDP. But we also know that there are issues to do with pressure on the infrastructure. We also know there are questions of adjustment. We also know that there are issues of in, just in the workplace about how you manage relations. We know that we are an ageing population in, in Europe, uh, and that, of course, is part of the reason that uh, we're bringing in these new people alongside with the need for skills. Uh, but we also we know that we are eventually going to have to deal with 
the adjustment to a workforce which is uh, older uh, and which we need to satisfy both the desires but also take the skills of those older workers into the workforce. We know that uh, increasingly, whereas in the old days, uh, disabled people used to be in a position where they, would, uh, they could work in segregated workplaces where actually we didn't have to take them on and so on. We know now, as employers, we do have to search amongst those groups of people currently that, that we've always turned our backs on, including disabled people. And that means we have to make adjustments to get the best of their talents and to give them uh, a fair, fair treatment of work. And that is entirely apart from the, what I personally think is probably the greatest single challenge that we're going to face in the work, workplace, which is that over the next 20 years, this country, like other countries in the West, will become countries where uh, a majority of the workforce is female. And over the last 30, 40 years, what we've tried to do legitimately and rightly is to create a situation in which the workplace is more friendly to women. Well, actually, in a situation where a majority of people in the workplace are women, and by the way, three out of five graduates coming out of our universities are female, and therefore at least the ranks of middle management are going to change in their uh, gender balance quite dramatically over the next decade or so, we may need to think entirely again about the way that we manage uh, work uh, and what we regard as the, uh, the default way of working uh, within the workplace. This again, and then there's a whole series of other questions about the way that we balance different interests in the workplace, something which has become rather clear uh, with the uh, penetration, if I can put it that way, of the issues of religious identity uh, in the workplace. I'll return to that in a moment. In this new world, with these new challenges, these new challenges, what we're really talking about is a workplace where there is no default worker. In the next decade, we will find that fewer than one in five workers will answer to the description white, male, non-disabled, and under 45. We have to begin to think of a workplace which is characterised entirely by its diversity. And that will mean rather difficult questions for employers, and uh, by implication for us at the, commission, the Equality and Human Rights Commission. How do we balance certain rights? How do we balance the rights of freedom of expression uh, versus uh, offence? And we don't have to go to big political questions about this. Uh, simple questions. In a small workplace, five employees, 20 employees, what do you do in a situation where maybe a quarter of the employees speak a language as their first language, which is other than English. And actually, for them, it's much easier to communicate with each other in English. Is that right in relation to their uh, other, uh, other colleagues? Is it right to do so, for example, in a shop, if uh, many of the customers uh, only speak English? But on the other hand, it may be more congenial, more effective, more productive for those workers. These are quite difficult questions which will take nuance, sensibility, and I think a level of flexibility which we're not used to. There will be issues to do with the needs of the workplace as opposed to the needs of identity. In recent times we've seen the arguments about uh, the, the A worker who, has, who wanted to wear the crucifix 
we will see arguments about the wearing of face, uh, face veils or uh, the arguments about the wearing of certain other religious symbols. Uh, again, employers are going to need to come to view about that. They will need guidance. And we would like very much to be able to give our guidance in concert with employers, having worked through the real, the real uh, challenges that people face, uh, as it were, no longer on the production line these days, but uh, in, at, at, or even on the coalface. I can't even think what the modern equivalent of those things are, uh, and I don't want to, any clever, to say anything clever about call centres, but really in the workplace, we're going to need to find real uh, ways of addressing these difficult issues. I want to say a couple of words, um, finally, about the Commission itself. I know that in business there is a sense in which we as a regulator are seen as uh, yet another burden. Now, I think that the reflex action, to some extent, in British business has become, you know, a regulator, uh, a public authority of our kind, uh, the less heard of, the better. We're determined to get past that view. Not because I, we believe that there should be a sort of dead hand of political, cor politically correct equality speak in every workplace, but because we believe that we've been brought into being to help our society to deal with some of the conflicts, some of the difficulties that I've just been talking about. We believe that the way to do that is not by standing back and waiting for somebody to make a mistake. We believe that the way to deal with this is to engage, engage as frequently, as intensely, as pragmatically as we can with those who have to do the business and come up, and come up with innovative, today, real-world solutions for dealing with some of, some of these issues. It's important because when we talk about the workplace, it's not just about productivity. I was um, this morning uh, talking to some young people who've been working on a rather brilliant project which is about um, conflict resolution and uh, what that means in this, the real world here in Leeds is there are groups of teenagers who come from different estates who would never in their lives have a reason to talk to each other unless they happen to meet in the street and decide to fight each other. And we all know, because we've been seeing it in the news recently, where that ends up. And in this particular project, they've used film and uh, communications as a way of beginning to bridge those divides. We're trying to do something similar through programs of summer camps, through art competitions, uh, through other ways of bringing young people together to achieve that. But the truth of the matter is that in this country... The workplace is the single place where most people meet other people who are not like themselves. We aren't, by the way, quite there yet because it is still true that 51% of people in this country, if you ask them, will tell you that they work, they do not meet somebody of a different ethnicity, of a different faith in their workplace. A majority of us work in places with people who are just like us. Nonetheless, it's a place where we interact. It's a place where we meet difference. And for us, to make the workplace do that effectively, do it in a way that brings people together rather than drives them apart, doesn't just have an economic value, it has a critical social value. We also, of course, want to make sure that there is 
fairness in uh, the broadest sense uh, in employment. And that means not just you know, crude measures of equality, what percentage of this have you got, how many women are there on the board, but a, a clear understanding of what fairness might mean in the workplace. So in a sense, what we think about much more, of course we want to see recruitment that is fair, that reflects a community from which people are recruiting. But we also want to make sure and work with business to make sure that employees feel that they're being treated fairly with, uh, in terms of promotion and progression, and that retention demonstrates they feel comfortable about the place that they're working in. Now, not all of this is about law. In fact, I think a, m a small part of it is about law. Much more about it, of it is about the kind of thing that I hope we'll be doing today, which is talking about what different groups do, different companies do, uh, and exchanging good practice. But law can make it easier, or it can make it more difficult. We will, at the end of this year, uh, see introduced into Parliament a new quality bill, and within the next two weeks or so, uh, the Secretary of State, who's responsible, Harriet Harman, will be outlining government's plans on this. I can't say exactly what she's going to say, because I don't know. I have some ideas, but what I can say is a few words about what we, as a Commission, would expect to see. And uh, this gives you some idea of how we expect uh, to work. First of all, we want to see a new bill which is just simpler. We've been counting recently, and we reckon that there are now about 116 different pieces of law that you have to observe if you want to make sure you're compliant with the best in equality and diversity. Now, that includes nine chapter primary laws, it includes 16 European directives, it includes... 30 codes, it includes two and a half thousand, I think it's now four thousand pages of guidance. It is inconceivable that any employer who does not employ the entire uh, uh, staff of the old East German Stasi could actually comply with our equality legislation. So, first of all, we want it simpler, partly for the benefit of those who have to uh, comply with it, but frankly, also because we can't enforce anything that is so complicated. Uh, and so uh, has so many different standards in it. Secondly, and that by the way includes for those in the public sector a single duty that covers all the kinds of possible equality deficits that might occur rather than having different standards for race and disability and so on and so forth. Secondly, we want to see the procurement process used in a more flexible but certainly more forcible way to uh, ensure that people are really working hard to embrace diversity, to manage it properly and to promote fairness. Thirdly, we want to see more transparency. That is to say, we think that rather than direction in the private sector, what really moves people, what makes them do things differently, is competition. You want to know that you are doing as well as the guys down the road or the people who are uh, competing with you for that piece of business. And lastly, we want the law to be clearer about things about, such as positive discrimination, positive action of any part, not positive discrimination. You see, even I, I'm still a little bit confused about what the law should say. We think the law should not encourage positive discrimination, but it should encourage positive action. But it's not clearly laid out, and too many uh, employers, too many businesses don't actually know what they're permitted to do, what level of flexibility they have. So we come back to where I started. The point of this conversation really is to begin a dialogue uh, here in uh, this region. Uh, we will be doing this all over the country. We hope, as I say, 
uh, in this area, Colleen and her colleagues will be taking this further. But today this is an opportunity, at least to open the conversation, to explore how you are doing, and also perhaps to explore what your expectations of our commission might be. Our job is to make your job easier. And the more clearly you can tell us how we can do that, uh, the greater chance we have of doing it. Thank you. Trevor Phillips says, speaking at the Royal Armouries in Leeds, In the next episode of Just Plain Sense, we go down the motorway from Leeds to Leicester for coverage of another recent conference, starting with Leicester MP Sir Peter Salisbury. Until then, from me, Christine Burns, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production.